0: Let me pray before we dive into the word today. Heavenly Father, you are great and you are worthy to be praised. You are worthy to be honored. You are worthy to be glorified and magnified, Father God. We ask that your spirit would come here uh, today and you would help us with not only understanding your word, Father God, but applying it to the deepest parts of our being, Father. We 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 are so good at listening to things and agreeing with them intellectually, we need your Spirit to come and do the work of uh, restructuring our hearts so that they embrace the glory of Christ Jesus and all that this book tells us that we must do, Father God. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Jacob, would you mind turning? Oh, you got the fans, okay. Right, thank you. <laughs> I was like, Oh uh, Okay, yeah, thank you. Um, So if you've got your Bibles, please take them and uh, turn with me to John 7, 37. Um, If you've been with us for the past few weeks, you know that uh, we've been uh, looking at uh, John 7 uh, holistically, but we've also been focusing on a few verses right in the middle of John 7, starting with verse 37. And um, we're going to now start to today, we're actually going to fully turn to the end of this chapter. When we began a few weeks ago in uh, John 7, when we first started with this chapter, we discovered that Jesus had for some time remained in Galilee. Uh, He had not gone into Judea because the Jewish leadership there uh, was intent on arresting him and killing him. But eventually, we saw that uh, at the beginning of that chapter, he does go to Judea uh, for the Feast of Booths, and he begins to teach in the temple. He uh, started saying something, uh, some of the same things right there at the beginning of the feast that, or in the middle of the feast when he started preaching, that had caused the very same things that had caused the Jewish leaders to be angry with them to begin with. Namely, he said that they were lawbreakers, that they were murderers because they were seeking to kill him, that they did not know God, and that they did not seek his glory. These are the things that he said. These are the kinds of things Jesus taught to the people who were there. Um, as he taught in the temple in the, during the Feast of Booth. In fact, in verse 17, he says that if your will was to do God's will, if your will was honestly to follow God's will, you would know that my teaching is actually from God. You would know that. And despite a, a, a pervasive kind of blanket of fear that surrounded all of Judea about Jesus, because the Jewish leaders were, were hunting for him, Jesus is in the temple and he's preaching fearlessly. He's preaching fearlessly, speaking the truth about these men, these very same men who are seeking to, to kill him. So during the Feast of Booths, or, or what we would call the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus, one of the things he does here is he engages his entire earthly ministry. He kind of gathers it up in his arms by doing two things. He, he tells them where he came from. He talks about where he came from, the Father's side. And then he talks about, where he's headed, namely back to the Father. And in between those two massive events, his coming into this world and his departure from this world, John 1.14 tells us that God the Son took on human flesh and tabernacled, dwelt among us. This is the same word that's used in the Greek for booth in the, the word feast of booth. This is the overall thrust of Jesus' teaching in John 7. Despite a mounting rejection, despite hostility that is around every corner, this is what he's preaching. He turns to the crowd at the last day of this feast, and he cries out something that we've looked at the last two weeks. And John records for us the words that Jesus cries out in John 37. So we're going to read this from this point all the way through verse 44, and then we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So this is the result of Jesus's final words during the Feast of Booths. He says, if anyone thirsts, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This is an intriguing set of words for people to get hung up on and for them to create such division and hostility. John tells us here that some of these people who heard Jesus confessed after hearing this, that he is the prophet. Or they confess that he is the Christ, which both of those are good because both of those are true. The prophet refers to the final and and consummate prophetic figure that Moses had foretold of in Deuteronomy 18, a title that we've seen resurface in John over and over again. This is who Jesus is. Jesus speaks with ultimate and decisive authority. So he is the prophet, but he's also the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one whom God has sent to save his people. So both of these confessions at the beginning of this section are right. But there's another group of people, verse 41. And they bring up the fact that Jesus is from Galilee. And in response to that fact, where Jesus has has come from, they cite scripture, presumably 2 Samuel 7 or Micah 5.2. These are two texts that talk about the Christ, the coming king, Arrive, originating from the line of David, coming from the city of Bethlehem. And they claim that if, if that's true, if these texts are true, there is no way that Jesus can come from Galilee. That's impossible, or that the Christ can arise from Galilee. This is their argument. And uh, evidently based on verse 44, they feel strong enough about this to consider arresting him. At least some of these people said that, uh, that they or desired to arrest him. Now, before we engage the misunderstanding that they have about the Messiah and where he is to come from, I want to just stand back a second and witness these two starkly different responses to Christ. There's a vast division between these two. This isn't slight. This isn't marginal. The difference here is huge. Some believe that he is the one, the Savior, who's come to redeem them. And others believe that he's a fraud deserving of death. You don't get two more dramatically different takes on one man. Both of these are serious. They're serious in particular because if you remember in the beginning of John 7, there was this scene or this uh, this description that John gave of Judea where everyone was too afraid of the Jewish leaders to even talk about him. But here at the end of John 7, they are talking. I mean, everyone's talking, they're talking loud and clear. So the lines have been drawn. Some are are willing to openly confess that Jesus is the prophet, he is the Christ. We know that they are confessing it openly because later on in verse 49, we'll see that in a second, the Pharisees are uh, evidently aware that people were confessing this openly. So this is open. This is not in a house somewhere where nobody understands what's going on. They are speaking boldly about their belief that this is the Christ, And others in verse 44 are speaking boldly that they desire for him to be arrested. They don't think he's the Christ. And all of this doesn't happen earlier in the week. This is another fascinating aspect. You'd think that this kind of division, this kind of hostility would have happened earlier in the Feast of Booths when Jesus is making these bold, incisive statements about his accusers. No, no, all of this happens at the very end of the Feast. Verse 37 and 38, when Jesus has this invitation, this is, this is where this happens, this is where this plays out. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And that invitation is what brings about this division. That's what draws these lines between people who are willing to adamantly confess that he's the Christ or the, the prophet and those who despise him and his word so much that they want him arrested. And they're not the only ones that want him arrested. You know this from earlier in this chapter, in verse 32, we saw this a few weeks back, we looked at uh, the fact that the Pharisees and the chief priests dispatched officers explicitly to arrest Jesus. Now, officers are these temple police, and they send these, this policing element out to arrest and detain Jesus. Their motives are not innocent. Their motives are wicked. John has told us multiple times in this chapter and in other chapters that precede this that they want Jesus dead. That's why they're sending people to arrest him. Arresting him is step one in his execution process. And what we see in verses 45 through 52, is, which closed the chapter for us, is the ultimate outcome of their efforts to arrest Jesus by sending these officers out. What's interesting about these last few verses in this chapter is that John uses them as this telescoping element to zoom in and kind of throw in stark contrast, uh, like make it more vivid and intensify what we see earlier in the division of the crowd. Uh, What we see in verses 45 through 52 is is really a a focusing in on what's going on throughout all of Judea, throughout all of, of Jerusalem. John is going to go to the heart of it by looking at a division that is emerging even among Jesus' own enemies. And all of this only comes after Jesus says the words he says in in verse 37 and 38, that people should come to him and drink. Look at verse 45. This is only days after the officers were dispatched to arrest Jesus. So it says, The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, one of the Pharisees, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And that's the end of John 7. So the very enemies who have been trying to kill Jesus this whole time for at least three chapters now had a chance to arrest him. They sent these officers, and yet these officers return empty-handed, claiming that Jesus spoke like no one they had ever heard before. One of the things we said earlier in this series was that Jesus is in control of when he dies. It's a beautiful fact when you read the Gospels. No one takes his life from me. This is what he says in John 10. John 10, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and guess what? I have authority to take it right back up again and we've seen this repeatedly in this chapter. People want him dead, but his hour to die has not yet come, so it doesn't. In this instance, they actually attempt to arrest him, but the officers see him, and they're so shaken by what they've seen, shaken enough not to do what they were explicitly commanded to do. And they tell the Pharisees, Listen, nobody ever spoke like this man. Nobody ever spoke like this man. That's a bold claim to make about a man to the people who are seeking to kill that same man because they think he's a fraud. But that's what happens here. The officers sent to arrest Jesus refuse to do their job. It's what they get paid for because of whatever they had seen when they encountered Christ, whatever they had walked away from, including Evidently, this invitation that comes at the end of the feast, something about it changed them. And so the Pharisees respond, like you would assume, if you're familiar with the Pharisees in the scriptures, they are angry about this. They respond with vitriol, and they say, have you been deceived also? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, they say, that doesn't know the law is accursed, so strong, strong words, they don't assume, even offer any curiosity, that these officers might actually be right about this man. They don't at all assume that. Instead, uh, they assume that these officers have been deceived like everybody else, and the reason that they've been deceived, the reason that's it's clear to them that, that these officers have been deceived, is because none of the Pharisees and the authorities believe that Jesus is the Christ. At least that's what they think before Nicodemus speaks up. You've got to wonder what their assumptions are about Nicodemus after he opens his mouth here. Their argument is that the crowd, and indeed these temple guards, do not know the law. They don't know it, and therefore they are accursed. And that's their logic. I mean, of course this crowd, the rabble, thinks that Jesus is the Christ. This Galilean rabbi is the Christ. They don't know the law. And so Nicodemus, who we first met in chapter three, you imagine he lifts up his hand and says, hold on a second, hold on a second. And Nicodemus was a Pharisee who, if you remember from chapter three, he goes to Jesus under the cover of night, because probably because he he knew that if he did it publicly, this kind of of attack would have happened uh, earlier. And Jesus tells Nicodemus straight up, listen, in order for you to see the kingdom of God, In order for you to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born of the Spirit. You have to be born again. A radical event has to happen in the center of your soul in order for you to even know that you can walk into the kingdom of God. Nicodemus here, evidently that conversation had an impact on him because he says what he says here. He says, hold on. Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does, in other words, is it right to seek this man's execution without hearing him out first? So, uh, to be clear, I mean this event, this exchange at the end of John seven shows very clearly that 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 the arrest of Jesus by the Pharisees, their attempt to arrest him, wasn't to create a hearing where they could legitimately hear him. It wasn't to uh, to have some proper legal proceeding they were arresting him to detain him so that they could kill him. They were trying to execute this man and Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee with them, sees the problem with this. This doesn't match up with our law. And he attempts to stop it. But look what happens in verse 52. They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So they accuse him of being a Galilean, as though that was some kind of pejorative. And then they tell him, you need to check your Bible. You need to check your Bible and see that the Christ can't be from Galilee. And so here we are on Galilee again. I mean, if you remember, this was the issue in verse 41 with the crowd. This is still the issue in verse 52 with the leaders. So what is the deal? What is the hang-up with Galilee? Well, there are historical reasons for this that are clear in just, we don't even need a history book, just look at the way that they talk about the place in this book. Uh, It's really clear that Galilee was this somewhat backwater territory north of Judea, and it bordered Gentile regions. But you remember from the very beginning of this book, chapter one, Nathanael, one of Jesus's own disciples, before he actually even meets Jesus, someone says, we think we found the Christ. And uh, (laughs) it He says, knowing where this man Jesus came from, can anything good come from Nazareth, one of the chief cities in Galilee? And so there's this hostility, this native hostility already in Judea and throughout Israel that the Savior of Israel would come from Galilee. And so they had all written it off. They had all written it off. Um, But they're wrong not only about Jesus, but around, about their law. Jesus told them earlier, if you remember earlier in this chapter, he told them this very thing. He said, has not Moses given you the law, but none of you keeps the law, when he calls them lawbreakers. So he, he accused them of not practicing the very law that they teach in the synagogue. That's what he says that they're doing, that they possess, that they know. And here at the end, we actually see them doing what Jesus said that they do. They're not practicing what they have. They claim that no prophet has ever risen from Galilee, but that's not true. If they had checked their Bibles, they would know that Jonah had arisen from Galilee. And in fact, Elijah and Nahum likely came from Galilee as well. These are Old Testament prophets that have come from the territories around the northern part of uh, the Lake Sea of Galilee. But even if that hadn't been the case, even if the geography of those things was very unclear for them, They should have known Isaiah 9, which, if you were with us over Christmas, you may remember this text in Isaiah. Isaiah 9 not only tells us that a prophet would shine in Galilee, but that he would be the son of David. Let me read it to you, starting with verse 1. So listen very closely to the language that Isaiah uses here. He says, there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun in the land of naphtali but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the jordan galilee of the nations isaiah continues the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone and then we can move down to verse 6 we gave this a month already so you guys know this text Down to verse 6, we see face to face, we come face to face with the light. For to us, these famous words, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David... And over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So according to the prophet Isaiah, God had promised that light would shine into the the territory beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And that light would be the ultimate and final light. Be the final light. We, We know that's true because the reign of this light, this divine sun, would last forever. It would never end. That's what the text says. It wouldn't end geographically. There's no place that it doesn't cover in the universe. And it would not end chronologically. There's no time when it does not uh, cover that, that time period. It would extend from the throne of King David forever. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ. And if they had known their scriptures, if they weren't blind to the glory of Jesus or even seeing it and walking away, they would have seen that Galilee is actually precisely the kind of place that God would use to send the Christ from. The crowd earlier mentioned uh, scriptures regarding David and Bethlehem. Those are true scriptures. It does say that, but notice how they began their question in verse 41. Look back to verse 41 in John 7. This is the first question they ask, does the Christ come from Galilee? does the Christ come from Galilee? They don't ask, what does the Bible say about the Christ? They ask, does the Christ come from Galilee? And then they reverse engineer evidence to suggest that he could not possibly come from Galilee. They fixate on this aspect. They take proof text and they say it's impossible. It's impossible for him to come from Galilee. Which, uh, you know, I'll be honest, if this was isolated in the passage, I wouldn't even bring it up here. I'd be like, you know, it's just a, a mention of Galilee. You know, they, they, Galilee had a, this, I, this, this mean over it. People didn't like it. So that makes sense. But the religious leaders mention it too. And so I think John is making a point here by including these two comments of Galilee as though it is in their minds impossible for Jesus to have been born in the line of David in the city of Bethlehem and yet to have lived in and done ministry in Galilee of the nations, according to the prophet Isaiah. But we know that that is exactly what happened. And we see here really what is a vivid example of what Jesus had warned about a few weeks back when we looked at verse 24, when he told the crowd, listen, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. That was his warning to them. And here we are at the end of the chapter presented with two very different responses to the invitation that he offers in verse 37. So someone in this two different responses that we see, some group has it right, and they are judging with right judgment, and the other one is not. They are judging by appearances. Jesus said to them something very simple. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And this, this, that line, despite all that he said before about their sin, that line is what sets off the resistance in this crowd, and this rabid hostility of the religious leaders. um, Him just saying, listen, I know you're thirsty. Come to me. Come to me. Why? Why does that invitation incite them this way? Why does it create so much drama? Why does it divide these two groups of people, people who know that he's the Christ and people who want him dead? Why does that happen with just this statement? Let's think about this for a second too. Just, I, think, I think it's easy for us 2,000 years removed to be, you know, this is a story. Put yourself there. Maybe you were one of the officers that were sent to arrest Jesus. That's your job you're doing what you think is right. You were sent to seize this troublemaker and to have him killed. And you're now standing before the leaders who sent you, of whom all of Judea is scared, and you tell them, listen, no one ever spoke like this man. No one. These are the very leaders who want Jesus dead. So what happened to those men? What happened to those officers? Like, what happened to them being sent from the Pharisees one moment and being completely changed by what they saw in Christ the next? They were convinced. They were convinced that there was something massively different about this Galilean rabbi from the rest of humanity. No one ever spoke like this. They didn't have a grid for him. They didn't have a framework for understanding who he was. And their statement, no one ever spoke like this man, is more true than they could possibly imagine. Think about that. He is the eternal word from before all creation, who has entered into human history, the divine Son of God, clothed himself in flesh so that he could dwell among us. God himself. So what happened to these men in verses 37 and 38? What changed them so profoundly? Well, at the same time, inciting everyone else, or not everyone else, but a great, great group of people to want Jesus dragged off the streets and silenced forever. What was it? Well, I want to look at those verses again. Jesus in verse 37 says, Come to me, drink of me. And then he explains in verse 38 why it's so important. Do you remember this? What does he say? Verse 38 Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And in verse 39, John and this. He tells us, listen, these rivers of living water are actually about the Holy Spirit who hasn't been given yet, but he's going to give the Holy Spirit to all who believe. And we looked at this last week. The Holy Spirit could only be given after Jesus had been glorified in his death his resurrection and His exaltation at the right hand of His Father, enthroned above all the universe. That's when He would give the Spirit. But the one thing we didn't ask the last two weeks when we looked at this was what Scripture is Jesus quoting here? Like, what, what passage is he, is he pulling from? And I don't know if you're the kind of uh, reader like me where you come across something in the New Testament, you're like, well, hold on a second, let me... Let me see this in the Old Testament because it's a quotation of an Old Testament text. They're all over the, 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 uh, the New Testament. The answer here, what passage, what text is Jesus quoting, is actually none. He's not quoting a text from Scripture. There's not a single Scripture that specifically says this. Instead, there are actually dozens upon dozens upon dozens of texts that say this in many different ways. Jesus here, when dealing with this invitation, is not content to simply quote one verse. He could have done that easily. But instead, he draws from a myriad of Scripture in the Old Testament, weaving them together in this unified truth. Ezekiel 47.1, Isaiah 58.11, Proverbs 18.4. All of those, and many others, point to the glorious reality of the Holy Spirit's work in and through those who would believe in the Messiah. All who come to Christ for this water that he offers. But what makes Jesus' invitation so controversial? Like, what what is it about that that is so divisive? What yields such a stark and intense response from the crowd, from the religious leaders? What is it? And there's one text in particular that will help us understand why this division happens why there was so much hostility, and that text is Isaiah 12. So if you have uh, your, script, your Bible, please take it. Turn with me to Isaiah 12, verse 1, and this is where we're going to spend just a few more minutes before we close. I, I want to move through this passage, and I want us to see the connections it has to John 7 and Jesus's invitation specifically in verse 37 and 38. This text, Isaiah 12, will help us understand what it means to come to Christ to drink, what he meant when he said that, what was in his mind, what was in his heart when he said, listen, out of your hearts will flow rivers of living water, and it'll help us understand why there was such division after he said that, some confessing him as the Christ and others wanting him dead. Verse 1. It begins with Isaiah the prophet looking at a future day when his readers, the recipients of his prophecy, will witness something about God. Listen to this, verse 1. He says, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. So before we continue, think about what Isaiah is saying here. Isaiah is talking about the mercy of God. He sees a day in the future when God's people will thank him because of his mercy. Although they deserve judgment, although they deserve justice because of their sin and their iniquity, God's righteous anger turns away from them so that he might comfort them. He might love them. Now, I want you to take that reality and think about it within the context of John 7. At the beginning, you remember what Jesus told his unbelieving brothers? Do you remember this? He said, he said, listen to me, I know you think that I can just go into Judea and do a bunch of miracles and attract a bunch of people, but you need to know that the world hates me. They don't like me like they like you. You're like them. They like you. They hate me because I testify about this world that its works are evil. And He told them this right at the beginning of John 7 and then in John 7, if you've been with us, you've seen him repeatedly do this. In fact, he even said, You don't know God. He told the the Jewish people searching for Christ, You don't know God. And yet he still speaks verse 37 to him, to them. Think about that. Jesus says verse 37 to these people who do not know God. They're, they're, they're his enemies. They want him dead. And yet he still says to them, if you thirst, listen, if, if, if you thirst, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Despite their rejection of him, despite their hostility toward him, Jesus turns to them and he offers them comfort. He does what God does in this text in Isaiah 12. He offers them mercy despite their sin against him, their hatred against him. But what's important to recognize and what we're going to see as we go through this this Isaiah 12 is that the mercy is only found in one place. It's found only in Jesus. The mercy is found in Christ. The mercy isn't something that Jesus has right here and that he offers people over here. The mercy is in receiving Christ himself. He says, drink of me. Drink of me. So it only comes through faith in Christ Jesus, through receiving him. Not something great that might come along with him. Like, there's plenty of things that come along with Jesus that are amazing gifts and blessings. Peace, assurance, uh, healing in the scriptures. We see this over and over again. And heaven, we get eternal joy in heaven. We don't go to hell. We, we're, we're saved from God's justice and wrath. But, but that's not what he says. He, he says, don't come to these things. He's saying, come to me. Salvation is only in receiving Jesus. Those other things are separate, well, they're, they're connected, but they're not him. Which is why, if you look in Isaiah 12, verse 2, the recipient of this says, and Isaiah quotes it here, behold, God is my salvation. God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength. He is my song and he has become my salvation. Salvation is not outside him and he hands it to us. He is the salvation. He is the salvation to which Isaiah says, if that's true of you, then with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation, which is another way of saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Let him come to this well and drink. His name is Jesus, and he quenches every thirst. We need to wrap our our minds around this because it's, it's, it's not common in Christianity that we think of salvation. God doesn't just offer salvation. God is salvation. It is in seeing him and knowing him, in trusting him that we are saved. That's why Isaiah says it here. God is our salvation. God is our strength. God is our song. And this is precisely what Jesus is saying in John 7. It is not enough for us to simply say Jesus saves. Jesus does save. Praise be to God. But Isaiah 12 and John 7 tell us that Jesus actually is that saving. The reality of that experience of salvation is only found in Christ. He saves us not by giving us a rope, but by being the rope for us, by being the salvation for us, and giving him giving us himself. Jesus is the well of salvation that we drink from, and therefore we must come to it with joy. This is what Isaiah tells us. Draw from, the, he says, with joy you will draw water from the well of salvation. And so the picture of what it means to partake in salvation isn't what we often associate with. it. We, 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 we tend to think that, oh, salvation is when I hear the altar call, I raise my hand, I, I sign a card, uh, now I'm a Christian. I've got, I've got a card that shows I'm a Christian. I made a decision once. doesn't really matter what happens afterwards. I'm in there. That's not how, that's not how Isaiah or Jesus depict this salvation. It's not this one-time isolated event. Salvation is, is this experience of a transformed life committed to this well, to satisfy my thirst. That's what it is. Every single eternal ultimate thirst that I have is pursued in that well, and I go to it with joy. I don't go to it just because I need it. I do need it desperately. I go to it with joy. The joy of salvation is found in the person of Jesus. So uh, this, this is a challenge, I think, uh, at least for most people, to understand that 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 Christianity is not just some, some sort of intellectual religion where we just agree with a set of ideas. That's not what happens in Christianity. No one who knows this water, who has tasted this water, is bored of it or is indifferent to it. No one who knows this water yawns when they see it. I was talking with Timothy earlier. Uh, earlier this week, and uh, we were talking about some of this, and I said, you know, a lot of Christians just consider Jesus to be the asparagus on their plate. I need this. It's important for me to have this. I'm going to eat this. It's not going to be fun, Uh, but I'm going to, sorry for all the asparagus lovers out there. (laughs) It's not going to be pleasurable, but I'm going to do it because I need it. I need it, and that's Christianity to them. I don't like, you know, I I I don't like coming to church. I don't like praising him. I mean, all of the, I would rather do, I'd rather go fishing. I'd rather do this. I'd rather do that. I'd rather do this. I have all these other things that I love more than him. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is being gripped by him and him being our treasure. and I know things compete in our lives all the time, but do we go to the water with joy in our hearts or do we do it to get it out of the way so we can do the stuff we really like to do? Isaiah's whole point here is that joy isn't optional when you drink from this well. The pursuit of Christ is the pursuit of true, real, lasting joy that nothing else can give us. And this is what it means to come to Jesus. It's, it's to be, I mean, think about the officers, it's to be gripped by the glory of this man. All that he is, all that he says, which is why Jesus, if you recall in John 7, told the crowds, In verse 16 and 17, he said, listen, my teaching is not mine. You're really impressed with my teaching. You need to know it comes from somewhere else. My teaching is not mine, but is his who sent me. That's his father, God. And then he says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know. He will know inside him whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority, like all of you do. That's what he says. In other words, what he's saying is, when I talk, what I say shows who I am. I don't need evidence. Something inside you tells you, that man is not normal. That man, no one's ever spoken like that man, such that his enemies can approach him with chains and spears, looking to arrest him and take him in and walk away saying, I've never heard anything like that before and I'm changed. Something changed inside of me. The very presence of this man, it's clear to me that his words are God's words, and I realize now how thirsty I am. And in that moment, in our utter bankruptcy, in our utter depravity, and all the brokenness that we have in our lives, we see the well of salvation in a life that has pursued every other well, broken cistern after broken cistern after broken cistern, And we come to him and we drink freely. His enemies, according to Romans 5. Don't don't isolate yourself from the officers. That's us. That's us. Romans 5 says, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. Jesus did not die for, for any innocent person, he died for enemies. And this is Jesus. We come to him with joy in our hearts, with a desire for him because he is our salvation. He is our joy. He is our treasure. He satisfies our deepest longings. Zechariah 13.1 says, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanness. Psalm thirty six th- th- thirty six says, They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights, for with you is the fountain of life. And in your light do we see light. And then my favorite, Psalm 87 says, it's a praise to God, all my springs are in you. All of them. I don't have any others. They're in you. So what happens when we do what Psalm 38 says and we taste and see that the Lord is good? What happens when we come to the fountain of Christ and we drink freely? Well, Isaiah 12 will tell us. Verse 4. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord for He has done gloriously. Let This be made known in all the earth, shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. That's what Isaiah says happens when we come to the fountain, which is precisely what Jesus told us would happen in John 7. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is exactly what he's talking about. The exaltation of his name in this world. Coming to the fountain that is Jesus fills the drinker, us, with joy, gratitude, praise, which exalt the person in work of Christ Jesus. We sing his praises and we make known his name in all the earth because that's what happens when you drink this water. Last week we saw that the Holy Spirit uh, is who John connects to these rivers in verse 39, he was given to us those who believe so that we might be, what was the word? Witnesses of Christ in this world. That's what happens when you come to this fountain. It is unavoidable to drink from this water means that rivers are going to flow from your heart to display the glories of Christ. And, and these rivers are not... Uh, I mean, just visualize this for a second. For rivers to come out of a heart physically, just do the mental picture, it's an overflow of something. It is a superabundance of a reality that you are experiencing that is overflowing. And what it is is an infinite, eternal overflow of joy that we have in Christ Jesus, manifested in our lives visibly by us showing him to this world, in both word and deed. This is what's happening in Isaiah 12. Earlier today, we had an opportunity to, uh, JT uh, led the God Loves Kingsgate folks in Kingsgate Plaza to pass out gift cards, and we, were do, I mean, we, do, we do it uh, every year at least once. We've, we're doing it twice this year. It's been a blessing to do this and be able to communicate the gospel to these people and show them the love of God tangibly in giving a gift to these people who have uh, worked hard to support the people of Kingsgate in a season that has been really, really hard for businesses, small businesses. And it was a blessing to see tears and eyes. Not when I gave them the card, But when I told them, listen, you need to know that God loves you. God loves you. It's not a game. He loves you, and he sent me to you so that you would know that. And in that moment when we're doing those things, there is this river. (laughs) of living water that is shooting out of us into that person's soul. And if God desires to, he will open their eyes and they will see him in his glory. And they will say, I want to drink that water. I want to drink it. I want to have that. This is the whole point of John 7. This is why there's so much division when Jesus says this because he's he's not just giving them something they want. Like if he said, listen, I'm going to topple this Roman government. Don't worry about it. I got it. Or if he said, do you want to get healing? I can do that. Let me do that. I see you got a broken leg. I see you, see you got leprosy. Let me figure, fix that out, fi- figure that out for you. I can do that. He doesn't do that. He doesn't offer them something they want. He's telling them, me. All you need is me. All you'll ever need is me. He's saying, I'm the fountain. Drink of me. Come to me. Plunge yourself into the reality of who I am. And if you do this, you need to be ready for rivers. You need to be prepared for rivers of water that will course out of you into this world in shouts of praise and joy for all that I've done for you. One of the things that this text does for me, John 7, is it tells me, listen, the greatness of the fountain that I've experienced corresponds to my enjoyment of its water. And it's a litmus test for every Christian because we should be able to reflect on how much do I enjoy this water as an understanding of how much do I understand its greatness, its beauty. And that should send us back into the scriptures to look at Jesus and to understand what God has done through him so that those waters are enjoyed and they just gush out. This is Jesus. This is the man that they approach to haul him off to his death and they end up leaving saying, no one ever talked like this man ever, ever. And John 7 takes place during the Feast of Booths. We've talked about this before. This word, Booth, is the same word that, d- that John uses in John 1.14 to talk about his dwelling on this, in this world. What happened in the incarnation, really, within the context of John 7, is that God reached into the darkness, into the wasteland, into the dry and barren desert that is our world spiritually, and he carved out at great cost to himself a fountain and filled it with water. And the the cost is his infinitely worthy, infinitely glorious, infinitely beautiful son who he put on a cross in order for this fountain to exist. And Jesus here during this feast doesn't just engage his dwelling, his tabernacling with us, On the last day of the feast, he points to the center of human history. He says, there is a fountain. There is a fountain. And that's me. And after he invites them in John 7, 37 and 38 to the fountain of living water, he goes to the cross and he purchases by his own blood every single drink they would ever need to quench their thirst. And let me clarify this before we close. Not earthly thirsts. He doesn't need to quench those. Those are, you know, from firsthand experience, earthly thirsts are fickle. They change from one day to the next. And in the end, they do not matter. They are eternally irrelevant. Jesus goes to the bottom of all of those thirsts to the eternal thirst that every human being ever made has in the deepest part of their being that cannot be satisfied by anything in this world, and he meets them there, at the bottom, where you are in your, in your essence. He meets you at the bottom there, and he quenches that thirst, which is why Isaiah 12 says that God is our salvation. Jesus is our salvation. He's the one we were created for. He's the one you were made for. He's the one that, whether you know it or not, you've been longing for your entire life. There is no greater joy that can be found in this world. No matter what you think, no matter what you believe, no matter what you know, view of reality you hold, it is simply true that Jesus alone is the greatest joy, the only thing that can satisfy us. And so, as we come to the end of John 7, whether you're a believer or not, you need to hear these words If anyone thirsts, let him come to Christ and drink. Let's pray. Father God, we stand before the glory of your word, um, humbled by its greatness. And uh, I recognize that even in my frail um, form and in my inability to, to comprehend and understand the depths of what you did in Jesus Christ on the cross, I know that your spirit who you've given us, can open the eyes of our hearts and we can see the glory of Christ in these words and we can hunger and thirst for him. And so I plead with you, Father God, send your spirit to do that work. Open the eyes of our hearts that we would see you in your splendor and that we would know how thirsty, how desperately thirsty we really are. Nothing else will satisfy us. So we need to stop looking and turn to you. We give you all the glory, Father. In the name of Jesus, amen.